You're listening to the Central City Assembly podcast. We're dedicated to sharing content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus for the good of our city and helps you grow in your love for Jesus. So enjoy this episode and may you be filled with the love of God the Father. Um, so that's it for announcements, but I hope y'all brought your Bibles and your notebooks because I might be biased, but my favorite person speaking today. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that would be my husband. And uh, <laughs> it's exciting. So it's been sweet this week getting to see um, how prayerful he's been, seeing him sit before the Lord and just listening. And I believe that what he has to share with us truly is something from the Lord's heart. So let's be good listeners and break out those Bibles and notebooks. Thank you, sweetie. All right. My name is Drew. And would you please turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look on with a neighbor, or there's Bibles in the back, back there. And when you're there, would you please rise and let's read the Word of God together. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1 says, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. They are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Such women are forever following new teachings but they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith, but they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach, how I live, and what my purpose in life is. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, but the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. 
They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Amen. Jesus, Jesus. Will we be sensitive what your spirit is saying to your church, God? Amen. You may be seated. So, for the past couple weeks, we've been in 2 Timothy. A couple weeks ago, we heard from my brother Miguel talk about suffering. And a man and a woman of God ought to have convictions to persevere through suffering, right? Last week, we heard from my dear sister Vanessa over there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, about pouring ourselves out, right? When we take responsibility for others, there comes a responsibility that we need to pour ourselves out, right? Everything that we've learned by submitting to Christ in others, as our Paul, we ought to be pouring out into others as a Timothy, right? Who is our Paul and who is our Timothy? So today, we're going to be talking about 2 Timothy chapter 3, but I want to focus on the last half, starting in verse 10. Paul's charge to Timothy. So point number one is this. A soul winner is trustworthy. A soul winner is trustworthy. Verse 10 says, But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach, how I live, and what my purpose in life is. The first step to soul winning is people need to trust you. People need to know you, right? I mean, how would Timothy get to know how Paul actually lives his life without spending time with him? You know, we don't know how much time they spent, what they did with their time, what all they talked about. But Paul feels so confident to tell Timothy with full assurance, you know how I live. Paul spent time with Timothy, and Timothy spent time with Paul. So I've been married for about a month now, actually six weeks to the day. And uh, how many of you know there's a difference between dating someone and actually living with someone? So the first month of being married, my sweet wife, Erica, where she go? There she is. She was being a good wife and was doing laundry. And uh, she found a habit about me that she didn't know while we were dating. I admit I may or may not pick my nose and put it at the corner of the sheets. <laughs> so she comes to me and she confronts me and she's like, hey, 
is there something you want to tell me? And I was so embarrassed. But before marriage, Erica knew little of how I lived day to day. Now, as my wife, she knows how I live. Same with my brother Luis there. He knows how I live too. To win a soul to Jesus, they must know how we live. A man named Louis Albert Banks once says, he describes in his journal this principle about a friend he met. He says, many times since then, we talked the matter over together. And again and again, he assured me that I would have never won him to Christ if I had not first won his friendship. He declares that it was his love for me that led him finally to have the courage to hope that he might love Christ as I did. And I find in Christ's love the help that I believed was there for him. The principle that Louis is elaborating on here is we become like the people we spend the most time with. We become like the people we spend the most time with. So my name's Drew, and I'm a college campus missionary. God has called me from Texas to preach the gospel and make disciples at the University of Arizona Beardown. And many people still don't understand exactly what I'm doing. When I'm inviting guys to change oil in my car or to cook a meal together or to play Monopoly late at night or to go get groceries, from the outside looking in, it looks like we're just having a bunch of fun. But what these guys are really doing is they're learning without me teaching. They learn how I talk to lost people. They learn how I treat my wife and my brothers. They learn how I handle my frustrations and problems such as a three-hour oil change. And if they come and they spend the night with me, and they wake up in the morning, they see how Miguel and I would abide daily with Jesus. They get to know what I teach, how I live, and they learn my purpose in life, which is to win souls. A soul winner is trustworthy. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. Take a moment and think for a second. What is the most important thing Jesus actually gave his disciples? It's time. I think besides his spirit, the most valuable thing that Jesus gave his disciples was his time. For three years, they camped, they fished, they walked, they talked from town to town, and Jesus had at least 70 plus disciples of whom he spent more time with 12 and the most time with three. So there's a guy that Miguel and I met this past year on campus. He's from Norway. He loves soccer. He's actually the, the uh, vice president of the soccer club, and he doesn't know Jesus. So Miguel met him. He shared some truth with them, and then he just started coming over to our home 
like the rest of the guys that we try to build friendships with. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't really care. And he's probably never read a Bible before in his life. But as he started coming over, we would meet on campus for lunch. He played games with us until like at 10 at night. And after a bit of time, he started to ask Miguel and I, so you guys really not have sex outside of marriage? You guys really don't watch porn? You guys really don't drink? Do you think alcohol is bad? He asked all these questions and vulnerability because honestly, I think he's never really met a real Christian before. But through spending time together, he began to trust us. He, invite, he even invited himself to mine and Erica's wedding. But he couldn't, uh, he couldn't make it. He was in Norway this summer. But A soul winner has to give up the right of mine. That's part of gaining someone's trust. We have to sacrifice my time, my plans, my food, my family time, always looking like we have it together, efficiency. It'd be so much faster to go to Fry's after a long day of work and to cook a meal by yourself. But the goal isn't primarily to finish a task, but it's to build trust with someone who doesn't know Christ. And the key about this is this after people really trust you, then they usually begin to trust what you teach. So part of trusting others is honoring others. Okay, y'all with me? Part of trusting honors, trusting others is honoring others. So when I say that word honor, the word honor actually means to give weight to something. It's, it's eye contact. It's, it's hanging on every word that someone says, right? It's remembering the vows you spoke to your spouse and the vows that your spouse spoke to you on your wedding day. So the opposite of honor, dishonor, is to treat as though it was common. Right? Has anyone ever asked a friend to do something and they didn't do it? Or maybe they forgot? What if they did that continually? Jordan Peterson says, assume the person you're listening to knows something that you don't. Assume the person that you're listening to knows something that you don't. And the Bible says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the Bible says that we should honor one another, right? That we should trust one another that we should listen to one another. For elders, for us, that's Pastor Kai. And he, it says here, is worthy of double honor, whatever that means. So it grieves my heart, and I have to ask, why is it that I see some people getting coffee when Kai asked us to take our seats? Why hasn't everyone given coins to camp when he asked us? Why isn't everyone in a growth group? 
When was the last time you answered the discussion questions at the end of the sermon with your growth group or a friend from church? The Bible says that Jesus could not perform miracles in his hometown because he was not honored there. Not that he would not, but that he could not. I firmly believe that a minister of the gospel is unable to minister to others unless he or she is honored. And I firmly believe that God will bless this church when we honor our pastor that God has set in authority. 2 Timothy chapter 3, going down to verse 14 says, You must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know you can trust those who taught you. Pastor Kai is a good teacher who doesn't tell us what we want to hear sometimes, which is exactly what Paul describes a good teacher ought to be. A soul winner is trustworthy. So, after people know how you live and they grow to really trust you, then they begin to really trust what you have to teach. Point number two, a soul winner knows the word of God. Going back to verse 10, he says, Timothy, you know what I teach. So in this whole book, we could talk about so many different things, right? But when you read this point after point, it's like he's like all over the place, right? So again, this, this letter is believed to be like one of the last letters that Paul writes to his son Timothy, his spiritual son Timothy. And I believe he's alluding to Timothy the hundreds of hours and lessons that he's taught him, right? So he's just like reminding him of all the things he's taught. So, quick question. Who can tell me what the Great Commission is? Yes, let's hear it. Yeah? To make disciples of all nations. That's right, Alex. To make disciples of all nations. And then it says, to teach these disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, says Jesus. So what are all the commands that Jesus gave us? Word for word, what has Jesus commanded us to do? Let me explain why this is important first, okay? So there I was. I was 20 years old. I was a junior in college at UT San Antonio Go Runners. And I was studying for my psych degree and learning how to make disciples. And part of this, our evangelism effort, we'd have this thing we call the Jesus exhibit, right? And we basically, we get these big old signs that said like, fear God, or is heaven real, is hell real, is the Bible inspired? And we like partner up with two people and we like stand in the middle of campus and we just talk with students, right? But my favorite part was we'd get these two microphones and we'd have a panel of about three people would sit on and one person would get have a microphone and then the microphone would go out in the middle of campus and anyone could come ask a question about anything. And it was awesome. It was intense. There'd be hundreds of people there and they'd be asking like about the aliens and all, all, all this stuff. It, was, it got weird sometimes. But so there I am. 20-year-old me, I'm sitting at the panel for the first time, 
And this guy walks up to me. He asked a simple question. He's like, hey, what's the definition of sin? And I'm just like, uh, uh, it's like, um, you know, Jesus died for it, and it's, like, bad, and, like, like don't eat apples, and, like, you know, it's just, like, bad stuff. Don't, don't do it, you know? <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I completely choked. He asked a simple definition, what's sin? What does the Bible say? What is sin? And so I, I, I get off the panel. I'm, like, so embarrassed. There's, like, hundreds of people, and they're, like, laughing. I'm, like, oh, my gosh, Lord, I'm a failure. And then, actually, of all people, Miguel was there. And he comes up to me, he gives me a hug, and he's like, hey, it's okay. It's okay to say, I don't know, but you are only allowed to say that once. <laughs> and then it's your duty to go home and study that so that you do know. A soul winner knows the word of God. This is so important because the, div, the, the devil tempted Eve with just a few words. How do you know God said that? Where does he say that in scripture? What does he mean? And Jesus overcame the devil by what? Saying, it is written. So when you get a friend to trust you, and they are in your life, and they're beginning to learn what you teach, then they begin to usually trust what you teach. So, going back, Matthew 13, right before Jesus, it talks about, you know, he's not honored in his hometown. There's this interesting passage that I came across. You all with me? So, Matthew 13, verse 47 Jesus had sat with his disciples, and this is right before he goes to Nazareth, where he's not honored, right? Before that, he has this very interesting passage. I don't think you've heard about it before, but let's hear it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net that was thrown into the water and caught fish of every kind. When the net was full, they dragged it onto the shore, sat down, and sorted the good fish into the crates, and the bad ones they threw away. That is the way that it will be at the end of the world. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous, throw in the wicked into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus says, do you understand all these things? His disciples reply, yes, we do. Then he added, every teacher of religious law who becomes a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like a homeowner who brings from his storeroom new gems of truth as well as old. Interesting. But right before that, Jesus asked them, do you understand all these things? Referring to the previous seven parables that he'd given, right? He mentions hell three times, saying that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in a fiery furnace. He puts, Jesus puts the requirement on the believer to understand all he has taught with them about hell, about the good soil, hearts, about responsibility, about sacrifice, about suffering. 
And it is the job of the soul winner to start with repentance. Before you can explain the Nephilim or tithing or the significance of revelation or anything else, the soul winner must understand they must start with the basis of being born again, which is repentance. Jesus says, you can't understand anything about the kingdom of heaven until you're born again. The first words that John the Baptist said was to repent. And the first words of Peter, of the first church, is repent. A soul winner must thoroughly explain to his friend what repentance is, which basically means a 180. You're going down one way, you stop, and you go the other way. They must understand what true faith in Jesus actually looks like lived out. Freedom from sin, forgiveness, the remission of sins. He must understand the sacredness of baptism. If someone's baptized and hasn't been repented, they're just a wet sinner. And the need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the key to holiness and power. Listen. These scriptures are important, and the duty of the soul winner is to understand them, explain them, and to live by them. So going back to 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 15 again, he says, You have been taught the holy scriptures since childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by what? Trusting in Jesus Christ. This leads me to my last point. A soul winner simply trusts in Jesus. So after you've built trust with your friend, you've thoroughly explained the teachings of Jesus, there comes this last step that you, you actually can't accomplish but can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus explains it to Nicodemus that there's a mystery in how someone is saved. He compares it to wind. It blows and it goes wherever it wants. You can't see how it actually works, but you know the effects of wind, right? It's a, or it's like a sponge completely cleaning off Everything inside a person's heart. In other words, it means to be born again. That is the miracle of a soul one. It's essentially this. It's the supernatural change in the core of a person. But the, what the soul winner can do is earnestly plead with God that he would do that in his friend's heart. So there I was again, after a year of many mature brothers building trust with me, I was 19, um, in the April of 2017, I had been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'd repented of sins, I'd sought forgiveness from a friend, I confessed secret sin in my life, and I was living up hungry 
for the word of God. And that summer of my freshman year, going into my sophomore year, I was invited to this prayer walk that we were having on campus. And that was the first time I actually wept for someone. It was there that I realized how real hell was and how real that Satan is working hard to distract my friends from the reality that their souls are endangered. I was driving, driving, driving up here and I just couldn't help see all the, the homeless people at this park right across the street. It was there that I made up my mind that I was going to work harder. Everything that went through my mind as a sophomore was how can I spend more time on campus? If I just change my classes right here, if I worked more hours late at night, then I have more time at this, at this critical hour. How can I spend more time with, with, with people? Everything changed. Every filter in my mind was thinking through how can I spend more time with my friends? An urgency. That's not to say that a college campus is the only place where lost people were, okay? But that's where God called me. But remember, we are worshipers first and workers second. Jesus says that unless we remain in him, we will not produce any fruit. I believe that he's talking about the fruit of the spirit, love, patience, joy, and self-control. But I believe he's also talking about other disciples. If we don't spend extravagant time with Jesus, then none of this is possible. People need to look at our lives and see Jesus in every part of it. To say, I am Christian, means we look like Jesus. But every soul winner has had a personal experience of salvation. So we're talking about soul winning, and there's a great book called A Soul Winner's Secret. And I'm going to read a quote from it. Soul Winner's Secret by Samuel Logan Bringle. He says, it must be a definite experience that tallies with the word of God. Only this can give that power and assurance to a man which will enable him to lead and win another man. You must have knowledge before imparting knowledge. You must have fire to kindle fire. You must have life to reproduce life. You must know Jesus and be on friendly terms with him to be able to introduce others to him. You must be one with Jesus and be bound up in the bundle of life with him if you would bring others into this life. You must know Jesus and be on friendly terms with him to be able to introduce others to him. So none of this is possible until we've had a radical experience with Jesus that leads to change in our lives. 
something the Lord's been teaching me in the past three weeks I've been um, preparing for this is that people can change. I had a, I had a hard conversation with a, a dear friend recently who um, I'm not confident he's walking in the Lord. And it, and it just kind of shattered a little bit like what, what Miguel was saying two weeks before. People can change. But also hope. There was someone else very dear to my heart. And she changed. It took three years. We prayed for her a long time. But she's walking with Jesus now. For better or worse, people can change. So for this last point, a soul winner trusts in Jesus. Trust also equals obedience. Last week, Vanessa shared a vision that she received from the Lord before moving to Tucson of a river of life pouring into the streets of Tucson that was flowing from a mountain. If this is going to happen, our city won to Christ, then we must obey Jesus. This vision, I believe, is contingent on obedience. It's because we trust in him that we obey his commands. It's because we trust in him that we're saved. It's because we trust in him that we become trustworthy. And it's because we trust in him that we listen to him. Jesus is coming back. He has imparted gifts, talents to every one of us. And he gives many parables of how he's coming back. A master expecting fruit, expecting return. And I don't know about you, but the best way to be found by Jesus when he appears is when we're found working. And I want to be found working. Thank you for listening. If you are blessed by this episode and would like to help us create more content that magnifies and multiplies Jesus, would you consider giving a financial gift of any amount today? Whatever you give will go towards building the kingdom of God in the lives of people all over the world. Thank you for your support, and we pray many blessings over you.